fun. All right. You can be seated. Thank you. First oh. John chapter 3. Let's get right into this. This is going to be fantastic. It's so good to be back with you. Man, you look good. The energy in the place is great. Pastor Dave and Kate, you've done such an incredible job. And um, what you're, which, what, I, I, I'm fully convinced that the greatest days for Bay City Outreach Center are yet ahead of it. And what's going to happen, with it, what it's going to do with this city, it's just fantastic. Um, for those of you who don't know me, this is all I do for a living. I travel around and speak. Had the incredible opportunity to minister in 13 nations in the last 12 months. Things are going very well. I've also had a great opportunity to be mentored by a pastor who just happens to have his rabbi training as well. So all my stuff comes from that bent. I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology, so I am qualified to sort your head out if needed be. <laughs> On your way out, you're going to see our resource table. Um, and if you can't find my resource table, seek medical help. It's taking up literally half the back of the room there. And the, and the reason we carry that around with us is because we make a heap of money from it. Um, and the, the reason we do that is because we believe we're not called simply to go to heaven when we die. That is boring. Um, that what we're going to do is we're going to, on our way to heaven, we are going to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so um, the profit from that um, this time of year goes to Cape Town. Just to give you an example, last year, the profit from that table was able to give 1.17 million rand to Cape Town uh, to help get girls out of sex trafficking. And, and that's, yeah, that's the, what we do with it. It's the only way we can do it. And so my business model is I, I run my entire business, my plane tickets, my salary, everything comes out of the love offerings and honorariums that I get on a weekly basis from Churches for Speaking. The profit from that goes to, um, well, on Wednesday, we're going to give $54,000 U.S. dollars to, um, to an orphanage in China that takes care of mentally handicapped children. And that's because of that, all right? So um, all I'm asking you to do is participate. If you go back there and grab something, change the way you look at God forever. And so doing, you put something in our hands that helps us feed children that can't eat, get girls off the street, things like this. You know, it's a pretty good deal. Either that or you can go home and put your whole life around the All Blacks winning and then wait to die and go to heaven. It'll all get better then. I don't know. So you just, you know, you, 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 could, do something, you could do something to, to make our world um, a better place. Also, I have an online mentoring program up and rolling where once a month I'm in an online classroom teaching people how to see the Bible like my rabbi taught me. So if you're interested in that, come on in. All right, 1 John chapter 3. Now, um, <clears throat> 1 John is a relatively short book, and I'm going to read something right out of the middle. And you can't read something right out of the middle of a book without setting up the context of it. It's not appropriate, okay? It's, it's, you can't just pick something right out of the middle of something and, and do that with it. So let me see if I can set this up by telling you a story about pastors. Every pastor I've ever met in my life started in ministry with the notion, I just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. That's actually why we start. I just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. I've never met a pastor who didn't start with that notion. And all of us start with that notion. But then what happens is, is um, you get into ministry and it's not that. It's more to it than that. You actually, if you're a pastor of a church, you spend 25% of your week being a bad real estate agent. And what I mean by that, you're dealing with building problems and stuff breaking and the worst people's opinion about the building and parking issues and government codes and easements and worse mortgage bankers. You're dealing with all this stuff and you just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. 
Then, then, then you spend another 25% of your week being a bad theological referee. Because I know this is going to surprise you, but there are people in this world that would rather argue about petty doctrinal issues than to do something to fix world hunger. And, and, and in a room this size, there's no way that there's not at least one in here. So if you're, if, if, if you're that one, if you're the person in this room that would rather argue about the Bible than feed a hungry person, let me speak for all of us. You are flippin' annoying, okay? Yep. You are just you are you you are just horrendous to deal with. All right. So, but 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 what happens is is when people would rather argue about petty verses of scripture than, than to do something to fix slavery and world hunger and, and and injustice and things like that. Not only are you annoying, it always ends up in the pastor's office. And so they because they think we know the answer to these things. And so that you spend twenty five percent of your week being a bad theological referee, twenty five percent of your week being a bad real estate agent. Then you spend another twenty five percent of your week being a bad counselor. Now let me be let me be frank about this. Um, if if you are going through something that is suffering, right? So if you're if you're going through if you're going through pain or suffering, like if you've lost a loved one or something, it is our joy as a pastor to walk through that with you. There's a grace given to pastors to walk through suffering with people, and we would count it a joy to do that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if you're the person who makes the same stupid decision every single week and you end up in our office every single week, and then we tell you stop doing that every single week. But you incessantly keep doing the very stupid thing that has ruined your life in the first place. I'm talking about you and everything in us wants to just scream at you. Stop it! But you can't because we live amongst you. And so we spend 25% of our week dealing with that. And so 25% of your week is spent dealing with being a bad real estate agent. 25% of your week is spent being a bad counselor. 25% of your week is spent being a bad theological referee. So by the time you get around to doing the thing you actually started in ministry to do, you're running out of energy to do it. Because all you want to do is lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. Now, can you imagine how hard it would have been to be a pastor in 65 AD? That, it's, it's difficult to be a pastor now. But to be a pastor in 65 AD would have been unbelievable. One, you didn't have a book. The Bible that you're all holding right now did not exist until the mid-300s. How do you pastor a church without a book? And so by 65 AD, there was problems going on. The, the church, I know this is going to surprise you, but the church of Jesus Christ that was supposed to bring the kingdom of heaven to the earth had actually started dividing over, wait for it, doctrinal debates, right? And so here's all they knew. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. That's it. That's all they knew. And somehow that was enough, which is brilliant. I, I, think, there's, I think there's something to be learned from the fact that in the, greatest, in the greatest growth spurt in church history, they didn't have a Bible to argue about. Actually, the church grew more without a Bible than they did with one, which is interesting, right? But, but what, what happened was, is Jesus lived, here's all you do. You're 65 AD, you're in Galilee, and you're trying to pastor a small community of believers. And, and here's what you know. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and rumor has it he ascended into heaven. And here's the confusing part. He took no one with him. It, it's almost like the whole point wasn't to go to heaven when we die. If the point was to go to heaven when you die, why wouldn't Jesus just take all his believers with him? He didn't. He ascends to heaven and he leaves all of them there. And he leaves them with this notion of, I want you to go make the world look like what it would look like if we were all living like I taught everybody to live. That's, uh, I want you to go do that. So you're trying to pastor a church, and all you know is Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. And, and then by 65 AD, there was three gigantic doctrinal debates. And this is the context of 1 John. The first, the first doctrinal debate was, 
was, did Jesus actually have skin on or not? Which is so weird. But nonetheless, there was, a, there was a group of people who said Jesus absolutely had skin on. There was another group of people who said, no, he was a 33-year spiritual aberration because he lived, died, and rose again. That's not possible for people with skin on to do. So you had a group of people who said Jesus had skin on. You had another group of people who said he didn't. And the poor pastor's just thinking, I just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. Second big debate was how well did the cross work? And there was a group of people that said the cross actually worked for the whole world, that Jesus intended to forgive the sins of the whole world, and Jesus tends to um, win at what he wants to do. And so because he, um, because he decided to forgive the sins of the whole world, the cross actually worked for the whole world. And then there was another group of people who said, no, the cross only works if you do our rituals. Right? And the power pastor is just thinking, I just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. And, and then the third big debate was, was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so there was one group that said, faith in Christ alone leads you to eternal life. And there was another group of people who said, no, it's not just faith in Christ alone. It's faith in Christ and doing our rituals. And, and in one extreme sect, to become our race. And so the poor pastor is just thinking, you know what? I just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. But you had a group of people saying that Jesus had flesh on. You had another group of people saying he didn't. You had one group of people people saying the cross worked. You had another group of people saying it didn't. You had another group of people saying faith in Christ alone is enough. Another group of people saying it's faith in Christ plus doing our rituals and rites and religious observances. And then in the middle of all that, remember, you don't have a book. So what would happen is, is every now and then you'd have people showing up at your church calling themselves prophets. And what would happen is they would say, hey, there's all these arguments going on and I'm a prophet. I got the answer for this. And so prophet A says something and you're supposed to test the prophecy. Here's the problem. You don't have a book. And how do you test a prophecy without a book? What's your question? Is he a nice guy? What do you do? So you got prophet A saying this and then you got prophet B saying this. So you have one group of people saying Jesus had flesh on, another group of people saying he didn't. One group of people saying the cross worked, one group of people saying it didn't. One group of people saying faith in Christ alone is for eternal life. The other group of people saying, no, it's not just faith in Christ alone, it's doing our rites and rituals and things like this. You got prophet A saying this, you got prophet B saying that. Then every now and then you're in Galilee, you have a guy showing up saying, listen, I've got the answer to this because I went to junior high with Peter's second cousin, Dave. And I asked Dave what Jesus would say about this. Dave's pretty sure Jesus would say this. And then another guy stands up and says, you know what, that's nothing. I went to senior high with Jesus' stepbrother, James. And I asked James about this. James is pretty sure Jesus would say this. And here's the problem. There wasn't an MP3 file folder full of Jesus' sayings that you could go check and see. It was all word of mouth. And the poor pastor's just thinking, I just want to lead more people to faith in Jesus in order to make the world a better place. Now, that's the context that 1 John is written in. John is writing into all these doctrinal debates, trying to recenter the church around the main thing, which was being kind to people, right? And so here's what he said. If you read it from the beginning, here's what John says. He says, everything you saw in Jesus Christ was true from the beginning of time. Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality. Jesus just showed you what God was always like. That's one. Two. When Jesus starts forgiving sins, he forgives all sins and he doesn't leave any of them uncovered. That's number two. Number three, he doesn't just forgive your sins, he forgives the sins of the entire world. Now that we got that straight, then he, he ends all of his doctrines. He ends all doctrinal debate and here's what he says, essentially for the rest of the three chapters. Here's what he says. He says, what difference does it make if you're the most correct church in all of Hastings if you're not known for being the kindest church in all of Hastings? What difference does it make if you get all, if we, if we took, if we took the last 50 years and what we did is we got all these theologies, if we got all of this stuff straight, what difference would it make if you're the most correct church in the entire region, if you're not known for being the nicest 
largest group of people in the entire region. What difference does it make if you're right, if all of your rightness doesn't inspire you to be more compassionate? What difference does that make? Now, it's in that context that we read this. I thought that was behind me the whole time. Here we go. First John chapter, here we go. First John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Now, watch this. This is so cool. Next slide. We know that we have passed from death to life. We know that we have passed from death to life because we get all of our doctrine straight. Nope. We know that we've passed from death to life because there's no error in our, theolo- in our theological code. Nope. We know we've passed from death to life because we took a second, we went to our priest and we said all of our sins. Nope. We know that we have passed from death to life because we came to an altar and prayed a magic prayer to make sure Jesus Christ was accepted in our heart to be our personal Lord and Savior so we could know we go to heaven when we die. Nope. We know we've passed from death to life because we have incredible ecstatic spiritual experiences. Nope. We, have I offended everybody yet? Okay. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. So in the earliest Christian tradition, when John was trying to recenter the church, he's like, you know what? There's all these doctrinal debates and all this stuff about what you must do to inherit eternal life and move from death to life. Now, here, here's the thing. Here, all the theology is going to sort itself out. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to forget about all that theology stuff, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to know that you have passed from death to life when you make a disciplined, determined decision to live a life of love for somebody else. Your first decision is to be kind. Now watch this. Anyone who does not love remain in death. And anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now, this has huge implications for us in 2015 in Hastings. Next slide. One, when you love someone, you're experiencing some version of eternal life now. To John, to enter into a life of love for other people, you're already starting the process of experiencing what eternal life is all about. And conversely, when you hate, you're experiencing some version of death, darkness, and decrease Now, maybe it's good to point out this, that for us, life and death are two distinct realms. You live, you die. That's how Western people think of life and death. You live, you die. First century Jewish people did not think of life and death that way. They thought of life and death as dynamic dimensions that you move in and out of. If you were inside God's ways and your life was moving to life, light, and increase, that was said to be life, light, and increase. But if you were acting like an idiot and your life was going into disrepair, you were said to be living in death, darkness, and decrease. But no matter how far down the road of death, darkness, and decrease you get, you can repent and move yourself back into life, light, and increase. These were dynamic dimensions that you could choose to move in and out of. Your choice was to live in death or life. I set before you today, life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life that you might live. For most of us, if this is talking about physical reality, you don't choose when you live and when you die. But in a spiritual dimension, you choose life or you choose death. You choose light or you choose dark. These were, these were dynamic dimensions. Maybe we could say it this way. Next slide. For us, the question is always whether or not there's life after death. What happens after you die? We're, we're enamored 
with that. If you want to make $10 million, all you have to do is claim that an angel or Jesus or somebody took you to heaven or hell and then write a book about it, right? Because who's to say it didn't happen, right? And people are enamored with that. If you wrote that book in the first century, literally no one would have bought it. Why? Jesus lived and died and rose again. Jesus died and rose from the dead, comes back from the dead, and he doesn't talk about heaven any, and he doesn't talk about hell any, and what I find more amazing is no one asked him. No one said, oh great, you're back. It's amazing. What was heaven like? What was hell like? How'd your altar call go when you preached there? What happened? Hey, when you rose from the dead, tombs everywhere emptied. All these amazing things that no one even asked Jesus about. When Jesus comes back from the dead, here's what they say. Oh, great, you're back. Are we going to take over Rome now? Is it now we're going to establish the kingdom on the earth? See, for us, the question is whether or not there's life after death. But for John, the question is how to have life before you die. On on your way to the olam haba, the world to come, on your way to that, how do you experience the life Jesus talked about? How do you experience that now? The word he uses is metababakamen, which is a big, long word that just means to change basis. In other words, he says, if you find yourself on the basis of death and you want to move your life to the foundation of life, here's what you do. First decision is not, has nothing to do with doctrine or theology or the Bible. It didn't even exist back then. It, it, it has nothing to do with any of that. If you want to move your life from life or from death over to life, here's what you do. Make a decision to love each other. That is the first decision. Now, this has some applications for us. Next slide. John says that one entry point into life is to commit to loving others. Like, if you, want, if you want to know that you're entering into life, your first decision is to live a life of love for somebody else. Let's say that a few different ways. Central to Christianity is seeing all of life as a gift. Everything we have is a gift of life, free. None of us deserve to be here. None of us deserve to be born. None of us put our parents together. None of us gave them amorous feelings for one another. None of us did that. And let me say this because of where I'm standing. None of us chose where we were born. You didn't choose to be born in New Zealand. You don't deserve that. You live live in one of the top five nations in the entire world. If you're going to gripe about New Zealand, where on earth are you going to go? If you can't make it here, where are you going to go? You were born in New Zealand. A country with the technology for almost everybody to drive a motorized car on a paved road to a store that prepares food for us. That's New Zealand. A country where if you need water, there's a tap. You have machines to wash clothes, another machine to make sure they dry quickly. This is New Zealand. I think God mutes all complaints out of New Zealand. An angel says, God, somebody's complaining. Where are they from? New Zealand. Is that where the Lord of the Rings was filmed? <laughs> Is that that incredible island country where they got these great mountains and also pretty good beaches and, and, and a really good climate? And they, they have technology and they have paved roads and motor cars and stores that prepare food for them. And they've got taps with water and all. Is that that country? Yes. I don't want to hear it. Life. Free. Breath. Free. Everybody take a deep breath in. And then out. That actually is very relaxing. Try that again. In. And then out. Now that was free. For now. At some point they'll find a way to tax it. But for right now, it's free. 
And, and the only way, the, the only people who don't take that for granted are, are asthmatics or people with pneumonia or emphysema, people, or, or, or someone who is in the moment of choking. You, 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 you didn't take your breath, you don't take your breath for granted anymore. If you can't get a breath, how much is the next breath worth? It's priceless. I've only choked once in my life. It was at a, it was at a restaurant on the west side of Brisbane at a place called Chermside. And I, I sucked a piece of food down my windpipe, and I could not get it back up, and I could not get a breath. And in that moment, I would have written a check for everything I own for the next breath. And it's amazing in those situations what you suddenly become okay with. I had a strange man I'd never met before running his fingers down my mouth trying to get the food out of my windpipe, and I liked it. I was like, yeah. Get you some of that, you know. It's a strange man, never met before. It never even crossed my mind. Where have your fingers been? Nothing. He held my head back, took his fingers, ran it down my mouth, trying to get the food out of my windpipe. And it didn't bother me one ounce. Why? Because I wanted breath more than I wanted his fingers out of my mouth. Free. No, 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 no. Back up, back up, back up. Forgiveness. Free. Free. None of us have a story like this. Hey, you know what? God wasn't going to forgive me, but then I prayed the right prayer at the right moment, at the right time, in the right posture, and God was like, you know what? I wasn't going to forgive you, but now I will. (laughs) Free. Resurrection. Free. And we take resurrection for granted because it's literally happening everywhere. Resurrection is happening in this room right now. Let, let me prove it to you. Everybody, this is a very simple exercise. Take, take your hand, do like this, and look at it. Just like if you were checking your watch. Actually, it's a good chance to check your watch and not act bored, right? So you just check your watch. And, and actually, I want you to look at the back of your hand. And, and here's what I want you to become aware of, that the skin on the back of your hand is 28 days old. It's brand new from 28 days ago. The skin on the back of your hand did not exist 28 days Ago. And we know this intuitively, which is why when it gets cold outside and you have darker uh, bed sheets, when you wake up in the morning, if you have dandruff on your pillowcase, you don't panic. You don't look at the dandruff and go, oh no! I'm losing skin at an alarming rate. At this rate, I'll be dead in 28 days. No, you just know that your skin is resurrecting itself. Newness is happening all the time. Free, resurrection, eternal life, salvation. All free. And these are big things, which leads me to this observation. Have you ever lost sight of the big things God has done in your life at the altar of having to figure it all out? Have, have, have you ever lost, let me say this, let me say another way. There's a better way to say that. Let me say it this way. Have you ever lost the opportunity to be in awe of the big things God's done because you get caught up in the minutia of having to understand it all? Like, um, you have great worship here. I find, I find the environment that you guys have created here very soothing to the soul. I, I, just, I find it very therapeutic. And here's the thing. W- would you rather be lost in the presence of God in worship, or would you rather understand all the verses about worship? I'd just rather be lost in the presence of God in worship. If I can understand it, cherry. But, I, but honestly, I would just rather, would you rather see someone healed, or would you, understand, would you rather understand all the theology of healing? I just rather if I just rather see him healed. If I can understand it, fantastic. Would you rather see someone set free, or would you rather understand all the theology and the mysteries around um, deliverance? I, I would just rather see him set free. If I can understand why, then fair enough. But if I don't, if I never understand why, that's actually okay. What one of the one of the great Christian philosophers um, is Dallas Willard. He's no relation to me, and he said this: one of the tragedies of getting older is we learn the ability to control our face muscles. Now, let let me explain what he meant by that because it's brilliant. 
A five-year-old cannot control their face. You, if you're a parent of a five-year-old, you never have any doubt if they're happy or sad. If they're happy, it's... If they're sad, it's obvious. They can't control their face muscle. If you have a five-year-old and you can't tell what they're feeling, get them checked out. Okay? Because that is, that, that is a very basic thing. Five-year-olds can't control their face. They're happy? Wow. They're sad? Oh. Right? And, they, and they, get, they get enamored by simple things. My, my, my brother has a, has a little, little boy. He's seven now. He's, you know, he thinks I'm awesome. And he, he, he comes over. He comes over to the house and, um, you know, this was a couple years back. He came over to the house and he goes, Uncle Shane, where's your iPad? I want to play with it. And I said, yeah, you can play with my iPad. He doesn't have an iPad. So I handed him my iPad. He comes back, I don't know, 30 seconds later. Uncle Shane, you don't have many games on this. And I said, oh, yeah, look, I don't really play very many games, buddy. He goes, would you buy me a game? And I said, sure, I'll buy you a game. Let me just figure out how to put a game on this. He's, he was five at the time. He's like, Uncle Shane, the app store. I was like, oh, all right, all right, smile. I knew that, right? And so, so I let him choose his game, Plants versus Zombies, right? So he, 99 cent, Plants versus Zombies. I gave him a 99 cent gift. It cost me 99 cent. I gave him a 99 cent gift. He was five at the time. He can't control his face. I hand him a 99 cent gift, and it's, wow. Oh, Uncle Shane, you're the best. Wow. And, and, and that's the difference. You hand a five-year-old a 99-cent gift, and they're, wow. You tell a 35-year-old all their sins have been forgiven, and nothing has been going to be held against them in eternity. And they're like, yeah, but, but prove it. <laughs> but Shane, what about the labor government? <laughs> so you mean Jesus overcame the Roman Empire, and he's worried about the labor government, really? He's like, it's just so bothered. Like, how small is our view of God. Let me, let me say it this way. Hey, maybe, that's, maybe that's what Jesus meant when he said, to inherit the kingdom of God, you've got to become like a little kid. In, in other words, you have to recapture your ability to be in awe at the simple things instead of getting caught up in the minutia of having to figure everything out. Maybe let's say the same thing another way. Next slide. Let, let, let's say it the opposite way. If life is a gift, then certain things don't belong in the light. Things like greed don't belong. Complaining doesn't belong. If it's Christmas and you hand someone a gift and they open that gift and they look and then they look back at you and go, really? Is that your best effort? If, 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 if somebody does that, is the problem with the gift giver or the gift receiver? It's always with the gift receiver. So, so here's, what's, here's what happens. So, so God has given us life and breath and forgiveness and the promise of eternal life and salvation and the hope of resurrection and death doesn't win. And then he let us be born in a place like New Zealand with paved roads and motor cars and stores that prepare food for us and water on tap and machines that wash clothes and other machines that get them dry. And we complain wanting someone else's life? I think God's like, Really? Like, really? Let me say it this way. Have you ever been, have you ever lost sight of what you do have at the altar of what you don't? Have we ever let what we don't have rob us of an awareness of what we do have? Let, let me illustrate this. I, I, I used to be a single adults pastor. That was, I was on staff at a very large church, about 4,000 people. And, and I, I, I used to, and my, one of my jobs there was I was the single adults pastor. And I enjoyed it. We built this huge thing. It was a blast. And, and, and I enjoyed 90% of it. There was part of it that I didn't enjoy. And, and the part of it I didn't enjoy was that single adults are notorious for wanting what they don't have. 
namely a spouse, right? So half my week was spent hearing this. Shane, I just want to be married. I want to be married. I want to be married. I want to be married. Shane, I just want to be married. I'm believing God for a spouse. I just want to be married. 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 And I was thinking, no, you don't. Like, let me be frank with you, okay? If you can't cope being single, you don't have a prayer on earth coping being married, right? Can I get an amen on that, right? Honestly, like if, if this is your prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, and by Jesus Christ, I mean blonde-haired, blue-eyed, clean-shaven Jesus Christ. Not the Middle Eastern Jesus Christ that makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm talking about the white European Jesus Christ. Dear Jesus Christ, um, this is your servant Shane here. I'm 27, I'm able-bodied, and I'm single. I do what I want to do when I want to do it. I don't have to run it by anybody, nor do I have to feel guilty about letting people down when I do what I want to do when I want to do it. And most importantly, no one on this earth is spending my money other than me. But Lord Jesus, this situation stresses me. So what I'd like you to do is consider entrusting me with one of your daughters who you love very much in order to make my life harder. If you're not coping signal, you honestly don't have a prayer on earth coping being married. Here's the problem. So part of my job was single adults pastor. The other part of my job was I was the church psychotherapist because I had my degree and license, and that's all the church counseling got filtered to me. So, so half my week was spent hearing this. I just want to be married. I 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 want to be married. But the other half of my week, I was doing all the church marriage counseling. So half the week was, I want to be married. 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 The other half of the week was, Shane, I want to be single. I want to be single. I want to be single. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I could hook y'all up. I don't know what to do. No one wanted to bloom in the field God planted them in. I mean, honestly, if you're married, make it the best marriage in the room. What other hope do you have? Be miserable and pray for a comet to come to earth to bring you sweet relief? Or, like, make it the best marriage in the room. If you're a single adult, be the best single adult in the room. There's nothing attractive about being focused on what you don't have. Everything you need to do everything God's called you to do is within the field you're in now. The most attractive single adults by far are the single adults with the throttle all the way to the ground, doing everything God's called them to be. And then one day they look around and realize someone's doing it with them. And if I could talk to you single adults for a second, listen, let me just digress. Let me talk to you single adults for a second. You could take this, you could leave it, you could do whatever you want to do with it. It won't affect me any, but trust me, I'm telling you the truth. And at the end of this, married people better say amen. Because I'm right. Listen, there is nothing attractive about being focused on what you don't have. Nothing. Quit believing God for a spouse. You don't need to find the one. You don't. You do not need to find the one. What you need to do is become the one that the one you're looking for is looking for. Right? Which, I mean, honestly, put your list away. They're embarrassing. Pastor Shane, I believe in God for a spouse. I have a list. I have my list. I'm just believing God. I'm believing God for a spouse. I just, I've got got my list. I've got my list of believing God for a spouse. Have you seen these lists? I, I, this was a while back. I asked this guy. I said, this guy was talking about his list. I said, let me see your list. So he showed me his list. I'm convinced this woman doesn't exist. <laughs> she was blonde. For the sake of appropriateness on Sunday morning, curvy. <laughs> she was intelligent, resourceful, passionate. She was successful in her career. She had money, and she was emotionally low-maintenance. All in one power-packed package. 
I said, mate. That tells you where she lived. I said, mate. This girl's a 10. He said, I know, Pastor Shane. Of course she's a 10. Of course you're believing God. When you believe God, the God of all things are possible. Our God is bigger and stronger and more powerful. When you're believing God, you believe God for a 10. I said, but bro, you're a four. Like on your best day, you're a four. Girls like this don't marry people like you. Girls like this marry brain surgeons. The last thing you need in the world is for God to bring this woman in your life. She wouldn't give you the time of day. What you need to do is become a seven and then lower your standards 30% and something might happen. And by the way, listen, you could take my advice, you could leave. It won't affect my life at all. But listen, you married people better say amen to this because I'm telling you I'm right. If you're a single adult, listen, never, ever, 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 ever ask someone to change while you're dating. You're already getting their best behavior. Dating is someone's sincerest attempt to impress you. If their sincerest attempt to impress you fails to impress you, leave. When you're dating, pick the thing about them that annoys you the most. Multiply it by five. Add some occasional horrendous smells under the covers, and you've got marriage. If you still love them, you finally found the one. And all the married people said, My Lord. Bloom in the field God planted you in right now, greed, complaining, hoarding, murder, treating others as below you, none of that belongs. Let's say it this way. Since we receive what we don't deserve, we should treat others the same. Do we treat people as they deserve or as they're worth? Jesus said it this way. If you want to know what God's like, look at birds and flowers. They do nothing to deserve it, but God takes care of them. How much more will he do? In other words, Jesus said, if you want to know the character of God, here's the character of God. God does not treat people as they deserve. He always treats people as they're worth. If you've ever looked at someone you found horrendous and you've wondered, I wonder why God doesn't get them. It's the same reason God doesn't get you. God doesn't get people. God treats people as they are worth, not as they deserve. And that's always surprising when it's not us. When it's us, we're thankful for that. When it's others, we wonder, what is God thinking? But the truth is, it's just in God's character to treat people as they are worth and not as they deserve. Let me go back to marriage for a second. I don't know who has the greatest marriage in the room, and it really doesn't matter. Here's what I know about them. Whoever has the greatest marriage in the room, here's what I know about them. They have learned to treat each other as they are worth and not as they deserve. You don't love your wife because she deserves it. There will be days she deserves it. Other days, not so much. (laughs) That's called life. You don't love her when she deserves it. You love her because she's worth it to you. 
You don't respect your husband because he deserves it. There will be days where your husband will amaze you with his superior intellect and leadership ability. You will look at him and think, wow. There'll be other days he's going to be a flipping idiot. That's called life. You don't respect your husband because he deserves it. You respect your husband because he's worth it. Kingdom people always treat people as they are worth and not as they deserve. Now, now, now watch how John applies this for our church life. This is, this is as basic as it gets. In other words, quit all the theology until you get this down. And I don't think we've got this down yet. And it's not you. It's the whole world. Check this. Here's what he keeps. This is the next verse. Next slide. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. In other words, you got what you don't deserve. Jesus treated you as you were worth and not as you deserve. All I'm asking you to do is to quit all the theology debates and start treating people as, they were, as they're worth and not as they deserve. To love somebody is not excusing horrendous behavior. To love someone is to see their potential if God was in full control of their life and then commit yourself to seeing it all the way through with them. That's what love is. Love is treating people as they are worth, not as they deserve. Since Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now watch his application. If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? To John, it had nothing to do with theology. It had to do with how you were living. And and, and I want to park here for a second. If you see a need that you could meet, It does you no good to feel guilty about needs you can do nothing about. But if you see a need that you could meet and you purposely choose to turn your back on it and you think God lives in you hell, tell me your argument. Because you prayed a magic prayer once? Really? Because you operate in power? Really? Because you have odd, eccentric spiritual experiences that not very many people understand? Really? 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 Oh, oh, you're an expert in 1 Thessalonians? Really? Really? Oh, 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 but you can, you, despite all of that, you can see needs that you have every capability of meeting and you purposely turn your back on the needs you could meet. And you think God lives in you how? How, let me, like, what, how, how do you think that is? John says, listen, if you see a need you could meet. Now, this is coming right down to home, isn't it? If you see, it, which leads me to this question. Is there a need that you could meet that you've purposely turned your back on it? In, in a room this size, it is highly statistically improbable that there isn't at least one person in this room that could write a check for well over six figures and not even feel it. And you haven't done it. Why? You, you, you would look at it. What, what would happen if, if you have, I don't know, if there's someone in this room that's worth, I don't know, let's just pick a figure, $10 million. That's highly likely there's at least one. What would happen if you came to Pastor Dave and said, you know what, I I would like to fully finance a weekly feeding program for the poor and needy in our community. And I'd like to have these people in and out of this. this, And you know what, don't worry about the money. I'm going to fully finance feeding a thousand people a week right through this. But what would happen? What would happen to, to the reputation of the church in the community? What would, my goodness. If you see a need you could meet. Now you might be thinking, Shane, seriously, seriously, I've got $40. Well, if you got $40, you're not the answer for the neighborhood feeding program. But, but, but if, if, if you got $40, if you got $40 and, you've, and you see a $4 need, you could meet that need. And if you're not faithful at meeting a $4 need when you got $40, how could you ever expect God to entrust you with more resources to meet bigger needs? If you're not going to be faithful with the $4 need, how in the world are you going to be faithful with the $4 million one? 
not, it's not happening. John, John says, hey, if you see, here's how you know, here's how you know who's a part of the truth. When people see needs they can meet and they're, they are relentless at meeting those needs, those are the people you want to hang with. Those are the, not the theological experts, not, not, not the spiritual pains and the bums, not them, not, 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 not people who focus on minor things, people who do this basic thing. They see a need they can meet and they choose to meet that need consistently. Watch where he goes with this. Watch this. Dear children, let us not love with words and speech. In other words, talk is cheap, but with actions and in truth. Now watch this next verse. Remember all the theology debates, all the doctrines, all this. Watch what he says. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. Woo-hoo. This is, in other words, if you're, if you're in the middle of disagreements and stuff, don't listen to people's arguments. Listen to their life. Listen to how they live. Watch this. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear children, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from next slide and receive from him anything. Next slide and receive from him anything. Next slide. And receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands. Now, I want to, I don't have time to break all this down, but the word keep there is not obey. Earlier, he made a point to say, kingdom people admit that they don't obey all the commands. If you say you're without sin, you're a liar. The truth isn't in you. But if you admit that you missed the mark, that's where the faithfulness of God picks up. The word keep there is not obey. The word keep there is the same word we would use for a goalkeeper. Someone who protects the goal. In that day, it was called teros. It was a prison guard, someone who guards it. In other words, the issue isn't obeying the commands completely. The issue is living a life that values the command so much that we protect it. And the command was to love each other. In other words, under no circumstance do you pull your goalie. Don't pull your goalie. The command is to love. But Shane, they disagree with us on tongues. So we pull our goalie? But Shane, they have a different doctrinal view. So we pull our goalie? But, 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 but Shane, they're there. So we pull our goalie? But Shane, they're that. So we pull our goalie. John says, this is how you set your heart at rest. Look at your life and make sure you're protecting the command to love. Under no circumstances, Bay City Outreach Center, are you to ever pull your goalie on your community. You love people. Love people. Watch this. And now and do his, and keep his commands and do what pleases them. And this is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Now, I want to go back and I want to examine one of the phrases in there that doesn't read well in English. It says, if anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them. That's sort of an odd way to say that. And one of the basic hermeneutics, if you're going to study scripture, is to look, it's easy to do now, is just to look at different translations and see what the different translators got out of it. Let me show you three of them. Next slide. Here's, in the NIV, it says, have no pity on them. If you see a need you could meet, you know it, you can meet it, and you choose to have no pity. That's how the NIV says it. The NLT says, show no mercy. I see it. I could do something, I'm not gonna. ISV, withhold compassion. I see it, I could do something, nah. ASV says withhold compassion. But my personal favorite is the King James Version. Let me show you that one. Next slide. Shutteth up thou bowels on them. (laughs) I love that. 
Isn't it amazing how the English language has changed? In the 1600s, it was a good thing to open your bowels on somebody. It was a euphemism for being charitable. I'd like to go on record right now to say I would like all of you to keep your bowels closed in my general direction. <laughs> Actually, in, in Jesus' day, it was the same. Um, their, their knowledge of medicine was so primitive, they just knew babies came out of there. Babies come out of here. And so, and so the, the center of life, evidently there was something in your gut that had the power to bring life out. It was, it was that primitive of an idea. So, so, so in, in Jesus' day, the center of your being was not your heart. That's today. The, 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 the center of your being was your, was your bowel. So, so in, in the first century, if you were dating someone and, 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 and you looked at her and you finally got the guts to tell her you loved her, you, you would say, if you said, sweetie, I just want you to know, I love you with all my heart, she would have went, uh, weird, hello, beating thing, no thank you, right? But if you looked at that same girl and went, sweetie, I just want you to know, I love you with all my bowel. Well, she would have went, oh, you move my bowels too. See, in Jesus' day, the center of life was, was the bowel. It was the life source. Uh, in the King James Version, they translate it directly literal, like, shutteth up thou bowels. That's actually what it says. The NIV looked at it and went, that's not what that means anymore. And so they, they interpret it, they have no pity on them. Let me show it to you in the original language. Here's the original language here. Next slide. Next slide. There you go. The original language says, Klease Tashplakna. Klease, close, ta, the, shplakna. Shplakna is your bowel. Essentially, John says, if you want to enter life, don't, don't close your shplakna. Don't live your life with a closed shplakna. Live your life with an open Shplakna. We, 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 would say, we would say don't close your heart off. Don't shut off your life source. Don't shut off your mercy. In the first century, is much more raw than that. He, he, was like, he was like, no, 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 no. Don't close your bowel. Don't, don't close your shplakna. Essentially, G, John's saying this. Next slide. John's saying uh, the, the, the way to know that you're entering into life and not death is to live life with an open shplakna. To, to, to live every day looking for needs you could meet, and then opening your shplakna. To, to make sure that you live life looking for needs you could meet, and then determining to meet those needs. Look, if you want the cure for mild depression, listen, I'm, I'm a licensed counselor. Oh, I was. Let me, I, have, I have the credentials to do it. Listen, um, sometimes depression is a physical deficiency in your brain. And in, and, in that, and in that instance, you need medicine, and you shouldn't feel guilty about that, okay? But sometimes mild depression is just simply caused by living a life where you never look outside yourself. And if you want a cure for mild depression, try this for 45 days. 
Make a commitment that every day for the next 45 days, find a need that is within your capability of meeting and then choose to meet the need. John says, if you want to enter into life, open your splachna. And I think this has, this has applications beyond money. What about worship? There are people who experience worship with an open splachna. There are people who experience worship with a closed one. Is one good and one bad? No. It's just one is wide open. Their entire being is open to what God is doing at that moment. And one person is wondering what, what's for lunch. It's, it's not bad. It's just not, you're not experiencing everything God has for you with that. What, what about work? Shane, I hate my job. I hate my job. I hate my job. So you change jobs and you hate that job. Then you change jobs. You hate that job. And the common denominator is you just hate to work. What if we went to work tomorrow with an open splachna? Instead of a closed one. What, what about parenting? That people say, I've got a three-year-old, Shane. I've got a three-year-old. I just can't control them. Listen, if you can't control a three-year-old, what is wrong with you? Right? You're five times their size. Come here. No. That's yes. I'm huge. If you can't control a three-year-old, that's on you. But 19, that's a different deal. If you're parent a 19-year-old, you still love them the same. And you should let them make their own decisions and, you know, face some pain and deal with it. And so they're old enough to make their own decisions, and you should let them make their own decisions. And here's the problem. They're just stupid, right? Because there's no such thing as a 19-year-old with wisdom, Right? And, and, and the closest thing a 19-year-old comes to having wisdom is saying, is admitting, I'm young and I don't know much, so help me, right? But it's never that easy. And so there, there are times when you're parenting where you're talking with your 19-year-old and they're like, yes, dad, okay, dad, okay, mom, yes. And, and you know they listen, but their splachna was closed. But then there's times where it got in there. Maybe the key to our whole life is living life with an open splachna in that moment. Canceling the white noise of worry and fear and saying, you know what? What does God have in front of me right now? Maybe we should wrestle with a few questions to close this out. Next slide. Do you experience God yet leave the same? Like, is your story, you know what? I come to church. I do my thing. I do my Bible study. I, I, I enter into worship. I listen to preaching. And nothing works. I don't think this whole thing works. But here's the problem. Is it's working for the person next to you? Maybe the issue isn't the church or the preacher or the, or, or the Bible or the worship or the climate in the room. or whatever. Maybe it's not the city you live in. Maybe, and maybe it's not you. Maybe, maybe it's not that you're a bad person. Maybe it's just you need to live life with an open shplakna. Let me say it this way. Do you relate to someone who's hard to love? You know that person you just wish God would go ahead and take to heaven, that one? Maybe you could try to live and listen to them with an open shplakna. But here's the easiest question for today is this. Do you see a need you could meet? I want you to just quiet the white noise and, and, and limit the moving around just for a second. And I want you to get quiet before the Lord. And, and if you're brave enough, I want you to pray this prayer underneath your breath. Holy Spirit, would you give me the courage to see things different and the irresistible urge to respond to what I see? If you're really serious, you could pray this prayer. Holy Spirit... Would you speak to my heart about a need I could meet? Would you speak to my heart about a need I could meet? Please don't burden me with needs I can't do anything about. Just needs I can 
me. And then don't give me rest until I do something. Would you look this way? You might be thinking, Shane, I don't have any money. Literally, I don't have any money. Okay. Let's take money and put it to the side and pretend it doesn't exist. Here's the one thing we all have the same amount of time of. The same amount of, and that's time. We all have the same amount of time. Everybody does. You have the same amount of time as Barack Obama. He's running America, okay? You, 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 have, the, you, you have the same amount of time as everybody. So let's say you don't have any money. Is there not a need you could meet with your time? Is, is, is this church so well infrastructured that it needs no more volunteers? Is, is Pastor Dave's vision so well staffed with volunteers that there's literally, if you came to him and said, I'll do anything you ask me to do, he couldn't think of nothing for you to do? Is there a need you could meet? Like I got here this morning, and um, I tell you what happened. Uh, there was a couple of people on the door, and those couple people on the door were smiling and welcoming me, and they were making my experience coming into the door uh, 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 better than it would have been without them. Now, whoever's running that ministry, I could tell you this about them. I could tell you they're doing a good job, and I could tell you they could use a few more hands. What if they had a few more hands out in the parking lot telling new people exactly where to go, helping mothers with prams? What, what if you had people out there? What, what, if, what if you had a crazy teenager who dressed up like a six-foot puppet and was handing out lollies to children or something? What, what, if, you, what if you did that? Could you, listen, could, could you not show up 25 minutes early and help create an incredible environment for people? Could you not stand on the door and welcome people? What, I mean, what's, your, what's your story there? I can't be nice to people. I don't have 25 minutes? Really? Open your splachna, man. <laughs> Listen, I don't, know who, I don't know who's running the children's church today, but I know I love them. And I know this, without them, there would be little kids running around in here. And you, and you mothers would be spending half the service going, shut up, be quiet, shh, shh. Listen, you're, you're disturbing things, right? And, and it's, just, it's just better it's better for the children. They don't want to hear about splachnas. They want to go back there and dance and sing and stuff. They, it's better for the children. It's better for us. I, I can tell you this. Whoever's running the children today, you know what you should do? Before you leave, you should take a second and go back there and thank them for their time today. And I don't know who's running the whole thing, but I do know this. I'm sure they could use a few more hands. What's your story there? Shane, I can't be nice to children. You say, no, I hate them. They're selfish little dirty mongrels. They wipe their nose on their hand. They leave it there. They're actually disgusting and expensive. (laughs) Well, okay, you're probably not our children's person. But nonetheless, (laughs) you you can't give 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes after service to help be nice to children? Open your splachna, man. I'm not sure who's running the teen stuff here, but I can tell you this, I love them. And let me tell you something about teenagers. In 25 years, they'll be running the joint, and you'll be complaining about what they do. But you have no right to complain about what the next generation does if you're not a part of molding the values of it now. What's your story? You can't give an hour a week, two hours a week to help mold the values of the next generation? Open your splachna, man. Maybe you're a great musician, 
Now, let me be careful with this. If you're not sure if you're great, get it checked out first. <laughs> by somebody not named mom. <laughs> right? But, but if you're great, could, could you not give a couple hours a week to help create an incredible environment of worship? For Open your splatna. You say, you don't know me, man. You don't know me, Shane. I'm a jerk. No one would want me. No, that's not true. Even if you're a jerk, you could be a sound guy. There's a wall separating you from everybody. You don't have to speak to people. You just sit there and turn knobs. And as long as you can turn your knobs, you make it all sound good, no one will even bother you. And if you're really introverted, you could be up at the slide booth. That is like in no man's land up there. We could, we could dress you in all black, put you behind the camera. You could be a camera ninja. <laughs> you can't sit around and wonder why you're generally dissatisfied with life if you're not going to make a decision to open your splatna. There's so much you could do. I've been coming here nine years, and I've never been one for huge altar calls or something. Just for me, it's, it just doesn't fit the sort of teaching I do. But today, and I'm not going to do a big altar call today, but I do want you to respond. I want you to take a second, and I want you to bow your head, and I want you to get quiet before the Lord, and I want you to shut out the white noise, and I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, where do I need to open my splachna? And I want you to make a commitment to send one text. Here's all I want you to do. I want you to make a commitment to send one text, one email, or make one phone call to Pastor Dave, Pastor Kate, Nikki, some of the staff here who are why, these guys. And I want you to, here's all I want the text to say. Here's all I want the email to say. Here's all I want the phone call to say. I don't know where I can, but if you will help me find my place, I will help you bring the kingdom to Hastings. If you'll help me find where I can serve, I will do it. Maybe you're here today and you need to open up your heart to Jesus for the first time. You could say, Lord Jesus, I have no hope of saving myself. I'm choosing to trust your version of my story instead of my own. Would you teach me how to live? We love you. Amen. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for letting me be a part of your day and your weekend. I hope you were very blessed by that, informed, inspired, and challenged. I bless you to be people who enter into life by living life with an open splatna. Until I see you again next year, grace and peace. God bless.